Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. Our context is this. In chapter 15, Paul first, in the first 11 verses, he talked about the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse 12 through verse 29, he talked about the resurrection of Christians, tying the two closely together. Without one, there's not the other. And then in verses 29 through 34, he talked about the practical ramifications of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Bad things happen. And now in verses 35 to the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about the resurrection body, its nature. What kind of body will we have? I'm going to divide that section, that discussion up into two audios because it's so long. This audio, we will cover verses 39 through, I'm sorry, 35 through 49. And so we will start with 1 Corinthians 15:35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Now, what Paul is referring to here when he says someone, this, that is people in the church who are either doubting the resurrection of the dead and are, having, are being weak in their faith about it, or it could refer to actual heretics who are denying the resurrection of Christ. But either way, Paul's going to deal with the skepticism there. Someone will say, well, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Now, he's going to answer that in this section, verses 35 through 49. He's going to use three analogies. He's going to use plant life, animal life, and heavenly bodies, pointing out that there's different levels of glory for plants, for animals, and for heavenly bodies. Now, this question about the resurrection of the dead, it might have been asked in a, in a, hostile, in a hostile fashion, but it's actually a very reasonable question. Here's what John Gill says about it. Quote, incredible that those dead bodies which have been laid in the earth for so many hundred and some thousands of years and have been long ago reduced to dust, and this dust has undergone a thousand forms, that such whose bodies have been burnt to ashes or destroyed by wild beasts and digested by them should ever be raised again. Such a doctrine must be past all belief. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown acknowledges that this is, this is a hard doctrine to believe. They say, quote, it is folly to deny a fact of revelation because we do not know the how. In other words, we just don't know how this is going to happen. Now, we know it's going to happen because Jesus said so. Jesus told Paul in a vision, this is exactly what's going to happen. But how it's going to happen, it's sort of mind-boggling if you think about it. I've always had a little trouble with it because I've had a skeptical past. Some people do drugs. I was a skeptic. The results were about just as damaging. But Jesus said it, and I believe it. Consider what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 37.3. Then he, God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. Now, Ezekiel was just talking about Israel being resurrected. And we believe that Israel, which has been scattered after the city was burnt down by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., can that scattered nation be come back into Israel and come back to life again? Well, that's just sort of hard for... Ezekiel to believe, and he says, Lord, only you know whether that can happen. And that's just talking about a nation coming back. Think about the bodies in the tombs being resurrected after all the bodies have rotted and the atoms dissipated and the bodies thrown into the ocean at sea and the bodies that have been ripped up by animals and the bodies that have been blasted in airplane crashes and so forth. That's gonna, God's going to put all that back together. Uh, yes, he is. Yes, he is, you someone. The someone will say, how are the dead raised? You know, Paul also mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, previous in this chapter. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, says Paul, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So see, some of the Corinthians were either actively preaching or at least doubting, actively preaching against or actually doubting the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's the question that Paul asked. He's anticipating. Well, he's putting the question in the mouths of skeptics, and he says, how are the dead raised? What kind of body are they going to have? Well, here's some kind of here's some options of what the resurrection body is going to be like. This is from John Gill. Option number one, or question number one, I should say, about the resurrection body. Will it be the same body, or will it be with another body? In other words, when Dan Trotter gets resurrected, will he be John Doe? Will he be somebody else? Second question, when Dan Trotter is resurrected, will it be an earthly body that needs, that eats, drinks, and procreates, or will it be a heavenly body that doesn't need all those things? Will we rather be like ghosts? Oh, wait a minute, but we're going to show you a ghost? Or will we be fleshly bodies who don't need things that earthly fleshly body need, fleshly bodies need? Third question we have to ask is, will the resurrected body be mortal? Can it die again after it's resurrected? Or will it be immortal for eternity? So these are the kind of questions we're going to look at as we go through this passage. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36 through 38. Foolish one. Again, Paul is referring to either skeptical Corinthians or heretics who are fighting the resurrection of the dead. Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Paul is referring to dying. He's talking about us dying and the planting of a seed is a metaphor he's using to refer to the planting of a human body into the ground when it is buried at its funeral. Now, Paul points out that when you put a seed in the ground, it comes to life and produces a beautiful crop, beautiful buds, beautiful flowers, beautiful leaves, beautiful stem, and all that. And he's saying, same thing's going to happen to us. We're going to be buried in the ground, and we're going to we're going to come to life again, and it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be more glorious than that little seed that was put in the ground, than that little overweight or anemic or sickly body that was put in the ground, boy, it's going to come out and you're going to look like Hercules. You're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, if you're a man. If you're a woman, who are you going to look like? I don't know. Loretta Young, maybe. But you're going to be looking great, just fine. Now, when Paul calls his opponents foolish, it shows that he's pretty hot against those who deny the resurrection of the dead. This shows how important the doctrine was to him. He called people fools that didn't believe in it. He calls them fools despite all their boast about the Greek philosophy they had. Remember back in chapter 2, all the, the wisdom and knowledge that they had. The Greeks seek, the Greeks seek knowledge all the time and wisdom. Call, they're fools. It doesn't matter how much wisdom they claim they have, they're fools. They also claim to have spiritualism because of words of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 12. But no, you're foolish if you deny the resurrection of the dead. Now, calling them fools, how does this not transgress the law of Christ? Because Jesus said to call someone a fool is to be in danger of hell, Matthew 5:22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that's pretty strong language, Jesus said. Well, how about this? Jesus himself called people fools, so we got a harmony problem here. Matthew 22, verse 17, You blind fools, for which is greater the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred. 
Jesus is referring to Pharisees who were playing fast and loose with their oaths and the way they swore. He calls them fools. Luke 11, verse 40. You fools, Jesus says. Did not he who made the outside of the cup make the inside also? Again, he's denouncing the Pharisees and their their externalisms. Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? Talking about the rich young fool who was making money, didn't realize he was going to die and couldn't take it with him. So there's three instances where Jesus point blank calls people fools, and yet he says in Matthew 5, 22, anybody that says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, how do you reconcile that? I think it's very easy to reconcile. You can call somebody a fool if they are a object, if they are objectively a fool. Nothing wrong with that. What Jesus was warning against is getting angry with somebody for no reason and just berating them and calling them a fool. With hatred in their heart. Jesus is not having hatred in his hearts when he tells the Pharisees, you blind fools. He was trying to get them to repent of their sins, and he was being very straightforward and blunt and frank with them. And they were fools. It's a big difference. John Gill tries to reconcile it by saying that Jesus was talking only about malevolent, calculated speech when you call somebody a fool, but not when you get angry and pop off at somebody. I don't think that's a good distinction. Paul might have been angry, but he had good reason to pop off with these people. Nothing wrong with calling somebody a fool if they are objectively a fool, and you don't have a malicious motivation in calling them a fool, but rather you're trying to protect the truth, which Paul was trying to do here. He was trying to protect the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul says that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So going to his physical analogy here, the seed is related to the plant that eventually grows. But the plant is much more glorious than the seed. So you have continuity in the fact that the seed has the same DNA as the plant that grows up. But you have discontinuity in the level of glory. The seed is sort of not very handsome, not very beautiful, sort of insignificant looking. But boy, when it grows in that beautiful flower, that beautiful plant, it becomes something very glorious. So the distinction, the discontinuity is with glory, but it is not with essence, not with who you are. So... If I'm planted in the ground, I come out as damn. People are going to be able to recognize me just like they recognized Jesus when he came out of the grave. But I'm not going to have a beer gut. Not that I drink beer, but I do have a beer gut. It's unfortunate. Notice that people, I said that people recognize Jesus in his resurrected body. But now notice that when Jesus was resurrected, he was not yet glorified yet because he not, had not ascended into heaven. So it's understandable that some people did not recognize him, which they didn't. But we are going to be glorified, which is not quite the same thing. The continuity between the body that is planted and the body that is resurrected, this explains why what happens is a resurrection. It's not a creation. God does not create us anew. He resurrects what that which has been buried in the ground. Now, that continuity between the mortal body and the immortal body, between the seed and the plant, is necessary for justice, as John Gill points out. It would be unjust for God to punish someone who is different than the one who denied him. It would be unjust for God to punish Someone who didn't commit the murder. The murderer is planted into the grave. A non-murderer is raised and then God punishes the non-murderer. That makes no sense. It would be unjust for God to save someone who's different than the one who believed him. If I believe in God and I rise again from the dead, I believe in God as Dan. I'm planted and rise again from the dead as John Doe and then John Doe gets saved. Well, what about me? So that's not going to work. There has to be continuity. Now, this idea of a seed falling into the ground and dying... Skeptics love to point out and say, hey, a seed that's past its germination point, that's non-vi- non-viable, that seed cannot 
come to life again. Therefore, Jesus made a mistake. What Jesus is saying is you put the seed in the ground. By the time the plant grows, you pull that plant up. You're not going to see that seed anywhere. It's gone. It's history. That's what he meant by dying. He didn't mean that the seed was non-viable. Jesus was no fool like liberals like to say he was. All the while they say that he's the greatest teacher in the world. So that's what he means by die. He said in John 12:24, I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. Now there, Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. Here, Paul is talking about believers' death and resurrections. He might have had a reference to Jesus' resurrection, but he's mainly talking about Christians' death and resurrection. This idea that a seed actually physically dies is around... Uh, maybe from old commentators who didn't understand the science, I don't know, but John Gill says this, this seed being cast into the earth corrupts, rots, and dies, and then is quickened and rises up in stalk, blade, and ear. Well, we're not going to worry about the biology of seeds. The point is that it's at least metaphorically dead because you don't see it anymore. It disappears. It's like you don't see the body when it's put into the ground. Now in verse 36, Paul says, what you sow does not come to life, What's he talking about life? That's talking about resurrection. Resurrection of the dead. It's a good verse in Job that refers to the resurrection of the dead. Job 19, verse 26. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Now, I need to point out to you there are some textual problems with that verse in Job. The NIV lists several options in the margin, and it shows whatever version you take, whatever textual manuscript version you take, we can show that Job believed in personal immortality of the soul, but not necessarily that he believed in a physical resurrection. That's why you can't really use that verse against type of preterists to deny the resurrection of the dead. But it might be, so that's why I mention it here. Now let's mention this word only in verse 37. Paul says, you are not sowing the future body when you sow, but only a seed. In other words, when you put the corpse into the ground, you're just planting a seed. Only a seed. Why does he say only a seed? That is to show the difference between the seed and the plant. The seed is our corrupt natural body that's in the grave, and the plant that grows is our resurrected, glorified, immortal bodies. That's what the word only. Compared to the result, a seed is only a seed. It's not a big deal. Only, in contrast with the full-grown plant, a seed is only a seed. The seed doesn't have stalk, flowers, and bulbs, etc. It's only a seed. Likewise, our resurrected bodies are going to be much more glorious than the ones we have now. And, of course, the ones we have now are still valuable in God's sight. We don't want to lose track of that. We don't want to go so far that we become Gnostics. Our fleshly body is a good thing, but it's nothing going, going when, you, when we compare it to what our glorified bodies will be. 1 Corinthians 15, 39-41, Paul continues, Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. That's a good verse to talk to evolutionists if you're a Christian and an evolutionist at the same time. This verse might talk you out of your contradictory beliefs, your oxymoronic beliefs. Verse 40, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. For one star differs from another star in splendor. Splendor is the Holman Christian Study Bible, glory, uh, you, the word that they use. Glory is another word you can use. And the point is, is that there are different bodies with different glories. You're talking about uh, living life, animate life, 
You got some animals, you got some birds, you got some fish. They all have different glories. Looked at from the human perspective, same thing with inanimate objects, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, inanimate objects. They're different glories. You look at the sun, it has more splendor, more brightness, more glory than the moon. And the moon has more brightness than the star, than a star. And then if you look at the stars, some stars are brighter than other stars, so they have different glories. Now, what is the point of all this difference? Paul's already talked about continuity. The seed that grows in the ground is the same seed that grows back up. Now he's talking about discontinuity. Remember, it's discontinuity of glory, of splendor, not of essence, not of DNA, if you will. Now, this difference could refer to the distinction between the glory of different humans as they're resurrected. This is Adam Clark's idea, and I do not believe this. I don't think that's his point at all. I think what he's trying to say is that humans' body, resurrected body are going to be more glorious, not only than the seed that was planted, but also more glorious than birds, than beasts, than sun, than moon, than stars. It's really going to be glorious. He could be comparing that difference. But actually, I think what he's really getting at is is that the human body is different in glory. The, the resurrected, immortal, glorified body is more glorious and more splendid than the seed the natural body, the fleshly body that we have now, which is planted in the ground at our funeral. That's what he's talking about. There's differences in glory. And that's in my opinion. It's, it's actually kind of hard to pin down Paul on exactly what he was talking about when he was talking about the differences. Is it differences between heavenly bodies or differences between he heavenly bodies and animal bodies and humans? It, it, it depends on how you read it. But I'll just say that it's a difference in glory, and we have a different glory than when we are glorified and resurrected, a different glory than we have when we are planted in the ground at our memorial service. John Gill has a, or mentions an interesting speculation about what this difference that Paul is talking about in these verses, that he's referring to the distinction between the wicked and the righteous. I don't think so. I don't think that has anything to do with the context. The difference is between the planted natural body, and the resurrected glory, glorious body. Now, he does mention flesh, Paul does. He says not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans. That shows that the resurrected body will not be a ghost, just like Jesus' resurrection body is not a phantom, is not a ghost. And Jesus is our exemplar. He's the first Adam, we're the second Adam. So when he was raised as fleshly body, we're going to be raised as a fleshly body. It will be a glorified body, but it is still a body. It is not a ghost. Here's some scriptures showing that Jesus was flesh and blood when he was raised. Luke 24:39. Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. He had flesh and bones, and you and I are going to have flesh and bones when we receive our resurrected body. He ate fish to show that he was not a ghost. In Luke 24, verses, verses 42 through 43, we read this. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Ghost, don't eat fish. John 20, verse 27, Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. A ghost doesn't have a touchable side and touchable hands. Philippians 3.21, Paul says this, He, God, will transform the body of our humble condition, that's the seed that's planted in the grave, He will transform that body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. That's B-O-D-Y, body. Not a ghost. We're going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus' glorious body. 
by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 43. Paul continues, So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. That so there, he's again referring to the previous verses when he talked about the differences and glories between inanimate objects such as plants, excuse me, such as um, stars and planets, and animate objects such as plants and animals, all that difference in glory. Well, we're going to have a difference in glory too. So he says, so, just as there's a difference between created those other created things, there's also going to be a difference in humans. And he lists the difference. The humans are sown in corruption. Corruption means your flesh will rot. When you put a dead body in the grave, without the embalming fluid, it will rot and become corrupted. However, when you're raised again, you won't need any more embalming fluid. You're never going to corrupt again. You are incorruptible. He says in verse 43, the dead body is sown in dishonor. Yeah. Have you ever looked at a corpse? You know, they do the best they can at the funeral homes to make the corpse look good. They put makeup on, put your best clothes on. But let's face it. People looking at that dead body, it's dishonorable. It's awful to see a dead body. It's just not what we like. However, that body will be raised in glory. It will be transformed to a glorious body where it's going to be quite pleasant to look at. Uh, after all, you're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Loretta Young. I don't know. Or maybe Hedy Lamar, if you're a girl. Paul finishes up verse 43 by saying this dead body is sown in weakness. I mean, there's nothing weaker than a, weaker than a corpse. It can't do anything. It can't see, hear, feel, speak, think, move, nothing. But it's raised in power. That means you're you will probably have with your glorified body powers that you never had here on earth. I would like to be able to fly, quite frankly. But we'll, we'll see when we get there. Now, that's so. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. The so refers to the differences in glory that, were, that Paul mentioned in the previous verses. And again, those differences, I think, is the contrast between resurrected bodies and natural ones. That seems to be Paul's main theme here. Now, Adam Clark says it's the contrast between different degrees of glory for resurrected bodies, which means that you might be looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I won't be. I don't believe that. I believe that it's the distinction, the contrast is between that seed, that corpse that's in the ground, and that glorified resurrected body. Adam Clark has another. He's talking about different glories for resurrected bodies. He said there's going to be more glory for more spiritually advanced people. Their resurrected body is going to look better than people who get in by the skin of their teeth who don't advance very much in their sanctification. The Jews had that notion, Adam Clark said. Adam Clark suggests this. I don't know if he believes it, but it's nonsense. It's not true, of course. Now, let me give you another crazy speculation. When Paul says that this body is sown in corruption, that means the dead body is buried in the ground. I think that's pretty clear. However, John Gill has suggested another option. I don't know if he believes it, but he suggests it. Well, actually, I think he does believe it, which is this. The dead body is sown in corruption. What it means is, is that when you were born, uh, when you were born naturally, you were created by sex, and sex is nasty. You were sown in the, with the corrupt practice of sex. The sperm was sown into the into the womb, into the egg, and that is corruption. That's nasty. That's filthy sex. Here's a quote from John Gill. It's original. The meaning of the body's original is the natural body, our body, is dishonorable. It comes, as the Jews often say, from a filthy drop, a filthy drop of sperm. 
It's generated, brought forth in a manner we are ashamed of. It is conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Well, there's no wonder that Christians had a bad view of sex with people teaching this kind of nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's not, the, the natural body is not sown in corruption because it was sown by sperm onto an egg. It's nonsense. It means that the corpse is put into the ground corrupt. It's dying. It's putrefying. It's, it's, it's coming apart. And it's sown is when it's laid in the ground. That's how the metaphor goes. We go to verse 44 of 1 Corinthians 15. Continuing, it's sown in natural body, it's raised to spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Obviously, you can't have a spiritual body unless there's a natural body here on earth first. Now, what does that word spiritual body mean? It does not mean it's a ghost. Uh, Hyperpeters heretics love this verse. They say, see there? See there? We don't have a physical body when we're raised, raised from the dead. It's a spiritual body. It's a ghost. So, therefore... If the resurrection that had dead happened in 87, it was a spiritual resurrection. There's spiritual ghosts floating around. Nonsense. That's not what it means. Here's some options as to what it does mean. And this is the option I prefer, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It means the resurrected body has a spiritual origin of its, its existence. So the spiritual body is a body which was created by the Holy Spirit, which is necessary, of course, if we're going to be born again and raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit caused it to be this way, therefore it's a spiritual body. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, it is, quote, a body wholly molded by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Another option, this is John Gill's option, is it's a spiritual body because the body will be subject to the spirit of man. I don't believe that. Adam Clark suggests that spiritual body means that the body is existing in a realm where the natural functions no longer operates. In other words, you don't need food, you don't need sex, you don't need the water. And that actually is plausible to me. But I really think the best option is it's a body that has the spirit as its origin, the Holy Spirit, as opposed to a natural body which has a sperm and an egg as its origin. Now, this proves that there is a physical resurrection of the believer. This is an important verse. The physical resurrection is in all of the Orthodox creeds, the Nicene Athanasian Creed, of course. I know there's Christians out there that love to say, I don't believe in the creeds, I just believe in the Bible. Okay, well, it's in the Bible, too. Philippians 3.21 says we are going to be resurrected in the likenesses of, Je of Jesus' body. Jesus' resurrected body was a physical body, so if we're resurrected in the likeness of Jesus' body, our, our resurrection will be physical also. As John Gill says, quote, it will not be changed into a spirit. Our Lord's risen body to which ours will be conformed was not a spirit, but as before, consisted of flesh and bones. Now the body will retain its personal identity. Of course, I've already said this. i say it again for emphasis. Let me read you these verses again. This is so important of how Jesus was a physical flesh and bone body when he rose from the dead. Luke 24, 39. Look at my hands and feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And, of course, you don't put hands into the side of a ghost. You don't touch the hands of a ghost. And, of course, the best verse of all is Philippians 3.21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Our humble condition, that's the seed condition. Into the likeness of his glorious body, we will be like Jesus' glorious body, his glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15.45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, of course, was Eve's husband. The last Adam is Jesus. Notice the contrast here. 
God put life into the first Adam, Eve's husband Adam. He put the spirit in him, put life in him. The last Adam puts life into other people. The last Adam is Jesus. He puts spirit into us. It's kind of a neat parallel. Adam received life. Jesus gave life. But it was life. And, of course, that's what Paul's talking about here is the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about life of the body. Contrast between Adam and Jesus is this. Our natural buried in the ground body came from Adam. But our resurrected body is going to come from Jesus. We go to verses 46 through 49 and we'll finish up this audio. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. We bear the image of the man made of dust because we look like Adam, look like a human being. But by golly, when we die and go to heaven and are raised, we're going to bear the image of Jesus, the heavenly man. So this shows that we can look at Jesus' glorified body and deduce what ours will be similar to. Although we have to make a distinction, Jesus' resurrected body was not glorified yet until he ascended 40 days later. But nonetheless, you get an idea. It was a body that managed to conquer death and crucifixion. It was immortal. It wasn't ever going to die again. And that's the same thing with our bodies. It ain't ever going to die again. That's it. It's over. No more arthritis. No more cancer. No more pain. Here again is the contrast between now and in heaven. We got natural versus spiritual. Natural is Adam spiritual is Jesus, and of course the spiritual is not first because you've got to be born naturally before you can get your glorified body in heaven. But again, con making that contrast, the earth, the first man was made of dust, second man is from heaven. There's a contrast, and there's a contrast between the earthly man, Adam, and the heavenly man, Jesus. I think that's pretty clear. Before we finish up this audio, I need to go back and revisit the three questions I mentioned at the beginning of this audio concerning the nature of the resurrected body. First question, will the body be the same body, or will it be another body that's resurrected? Though the way the philosophers and the theologians put it, will it there be a numerical identity between the two bodies? The answer is yes, we have the same body. I'm going to be resurrected as Dan Trotter, and people will be able to recognize me. So that's the first question. We're resurrected with the same body. The second question, will it be an earthly or a heavenly body? Will it be a body that eats, drinks, and procreates, or will it be a body that is like a ghost? Well, it's not going to be like a ghost. Remember, Jesus was born again. He ate and drank. Now, there is not going to be any insects in heaven, but we are going to have eating and drinking, apparently. So we're sort of in an intermediate stage there. We're not ghosts, but on the other hand, we're not as tied to our earthly wants as we are now. Although, there is evidence that we will be eating because Jesus ate after he rose again from the dead. But again, you have to be careful because Jesus rose. He was in an intermediate state. He had not been glorified yet. <clears throat> I would suspect that once we're glorified, we're not going to be eating and drinking. We know we're not going to be having sex. We're probably not going to be eating and drinking either. But I don't know. I could be wrong. Third question, will we have a mortal or immortal body? Well, the answer to that is it, our body will be immortal. We'll never die again. So on that happy note... We'll shut down this audio. We'll finish the chapter in the next audio and continue talking about the resurrection of the body and our glorious future. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.